I just went for my yearly physical. I met a, I guess maybe at an age, and this says something about maybe my integrity. My wife insists now on coming into the, into the room and talking with the doctor. And I've, I've told her, I can tell you what he says, and, and uh, she, she feels like I have selective hearing and selective reporting. And so we're sitting in there, and, the, and my doctor says, you know, your blood pressure is fantastic. And I said, sweetheart, you hear that? I'm in good shape. And then he said, you really need to cut back on the breads and the sugar. And I said, then you've just said that I don't have much to live for, doctor. <laughs> and uh, what can I do to help respond to this? He said, well, I said, so I suggested, what if I walk 10,000 steps a day? You know, you really should cut back on the bread and the sugar. I said, 15,000. He said, now we're, now, we're, we're, now we're talking. So last night, very cold outside. Jalen goes, where are you going? I thought to myself, I'm going to eat my bread and my sugar, and so I'm going out to finish my 15,000 steps. Kind of cold out. I don't care if it starts snowing, sweetheart. I'm going out and walking tonight. You know, there's a lot of things that they can diagnose through testing, but sometimes the, the things that maybe are most serious don't don't become obvious until really there's some serious problems, particularly heart issues. Uh, sometimes people have very serious heart problems and they don't even know it. They go to a very good doctor and have a very trained physician, but, but it works beneath the surface and, and sometimes uh, heart problems, uh, they, they aren't known until it's almost too late to do anything about them. The passage of Scripture we're looking at today is about a heart problem. It's about the heart problem that the religious leaders had, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. Over the last several weeks, we've noticed how they are trying to trap Jesus. They're asking him pointed questions, direct questions. They're hoping to embarrass him. They're hoping to trap him in a, in a bad response, in a wrong response that would turn the crowds against him. Uh, because the crowds are beginning to grow, people are mesmerized by his teaching, they're fascinated with his miracle-working power, and yet the religious leaders keep questioning him. And we see a couple of questions this morning. In fact, we see two stories this morning. In the first story, Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath while walking through a, a grain field. In the second story, Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath while teaching in a synagogue. In the first story, the disciples supposedly break the Sabbath by harvesting grain. In the second story, Jesus supposedly breaks the Sabbath by healing a man with a withered hand. In the first story, Jesus responds to the accusation by referring to Scripture. In the second story, Jesus responds to the accusation using sanctified thinking. In both stories, Jesus is, is seen caring for people, and in both stories, the Pharisees are seen conspiring against Jesus. Both stories demonstrate how narrow-minded religiosity complete, is completely incapable 
of seeing the needs of others and recognizing their own hypocrisy. And so what we have are two demonstrations of Jesus being Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus helping us understand why God created the Sabbath. And we see very, very clearly the dangers of cold-hearted religion. Now, what I'm about to say as we work our way through this, I don't think there's probably a single one of us in here today that perfectly exemplify the Pharisees and the scribes. I don't think there's any of us so diluted and so ill-spirited and so mean and obstinate that, that we are a perfect reflection of Phariseeism. But I think all of us probably have tinges of it in our lives. All of us are, who know Jesus Christ have indwelling sin. All of us are being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's a slow process. It's an arduous process. And it's sometimes a difficult process. But I think when we, when we begin to look deeply enough, what we'll find is that there are tinges, there are hints, there are places of the religion of the Pharisees that resides in all of us. And what I want to suggest at the end of our sermon this morning is the antidote for that. You'll notice in verse 1, Jesus and the disciples are taking a Sabbath day stroll. The Jewish Sabbath was Saturday, and they worshiped every Saturday. In fact, you worked six days a week if you were Jewish, and you did not work on the Sabbath day. That's what set the Jews apart, circumcision and Sabbath day observance. In fact, they were considered lazy. They were, they were looked upon very, in a very demeaning way by the Greco-Roman world because they did not work one day a week. Our day of worship is Sunday. We worship on Sunday because we're commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the early church. Very, very quickly after the resurrection of Jesus, moved from Sabbath worship to Sunday worship, worshiping on the Saturday to worshiping on Sunday. So Jesus and his disciples are taking a stroll. You could only walk two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day according to the religious leaders, according to the Pharisees, the rabbis, and the oral traditions. Because if you walked more than two-thirds of a mile on the Sabbath day, you might break into a sweat, and that would be considered work. That didn't contravene God's Word. It contravened the Word and the rules of the rabbis, and particularly the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. In verse 2, we see the the problem, at least the problem for the religious leaders, it's believed that they're breaking the Sabbath by harvesting grain. Now, we shouldn't think that they were stealing from a, an unnamed farmer here. In fact, God had, God had made provisions for people like the disciples, for people that, that lived in impoverishment. Uh, farmers were not to harvest the edges, the outer edges of their fields, so that those that were less, uh, less well off than them were able to, to glean from those fields and, and supply for their families, even though that they were impoverished. And 
what the disciples are doing, they're not stealing, they're not even harvesting in the traditional sense of the word. They're meeting a need. They're, they're, they're hungry. Uh, they, didn't, they couldn't carry around snack bars like we do, or they didn't have, uh, have convenience stores in the same way that we have convenience stores. And so as they're walking on a Sabbath day, they see the grain field, the edges of the grain field have not been harvested. They pick some of the grain, they rub it in their hands to separate the wheat from the chaff. They're doing exactly what they're allowed to do. In fact, listen to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So that's exactly what they're doing. They are doing just exactly what they're allowed to do, what they're permitted to do. They are not doing what they should not do. But notice what the Pharisees say. Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, they're contravening, they are contradicting, they are disobeying the oral traditions, the rabbinical traditions, but they're not disobeying the Word of God. They're disobeying the traditions that the religious leaders had put up to a level equal to the Bible, but they weren't disobeying the Bible. So Jesus in verse uh, 3 responds by referring to the Bible, and he refers to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And he says, have you not even read what David did? Now, those words would have infuriated the rabbis. They would have caused the Pharisees to come unglued, to say, have you not read? These are men who knew the Bible. They had much of the Bible memorized. The scribes in particular knew the Bible with meticulous detail. And Jesus is saying to very well-educated men, very well-trained in the Scriptures, have you never read the Bible? Well, that would have been like jabbing them with the proverbial knife. Have you never read what David did when he and his men were hungry? And so he's going back to 1 Samuel 21.6. Let me paint kind of the scenario for you. David is fleeing for his life. David is running from Saul. Saul is Israel's king, but God had withdrawn his spirit from Saul. Saul knew that David was going to succeed him as king. Saul knew that David was God's man, that David was a man after God's own heart, that David was a very close friend of his son, his son Jonathan, Saul's son Jonathan. And David and his men are on the run. They're, they're outlaws, according to Saul. And they've, they've had very little to eat and, and very little sustenance. And so they come, to the, they come to the house of God, to the tent of God, and in the tent of God, in the holy place, are 12 loaves of bread called the bread of the presence. Sometimes it's called the showbread. And these, these 12 loaves represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 loaves of bread were to be replaced with fresh loaves once a week. And when the fresh loaves were placed on the table, the other 12 loaves were to be eaten only by the priest, a part of ceremonial regulations. So what did they do? 
the priest gave the bread to David and his men because their great need superseded ceremonial regulations. Uh, they needed sustenance. They needed food. They needed, they needed to be able to, uh, to move on. And so the priest gave them the bread of the presence, indicating that human need supersedes ceremonial regulations. And so Jesus goes on to say, and he was saying to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So if David is not accused of breaking the Sabbath because he and his companions, he and his followers ate the bread from the holy place. How can you accuse us of breaking the Sabbath when what we have actually done is commensurate with the Word of God and it doesn't transgress the law of God? And so, he, Jesus, is the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that Jesus is able to interpret what is appropriate and inappropriate activity on the Sabbath day. He created the Sabbath day. He created these men. He created the bread that was given to, the, to David and his companions. He created the grain that these men were eating. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, the problem is, that these men that Jesus is dealing with, they don't see things the way that Jesus sees them because their heart is hard toward God. They don't understand that when Jesus refers to himself as son of man, he's going back to one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament and applying it to himself. I told you a few weeks ago that son of man is Jesus' favorite self-designation. Uh, when I visit with people, they'll sometimes ask me, how do you prefer that we call you at the church? Do you like being called Dr. Cook, Bill, Pastor? I said, you can call me anything but doctor. You're, I'm happy for you to call me pastor. I love, the, I, love the, I love the title pastor. You can call me Bill. I would prefer you not call me Dr. Cook unless you just feel, feel like uh, you're compelled by conscience sake and you've got a word of God in the scriptures to do it. I just prefer pastor or bill. So when Jesus refers to himself, he refers to himself as son of man. Uh, listen to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is, where, this is where son of man language originates. This is where son of man language comes from. I kept looking in the sky vision, in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom. So that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Well, why did Jesus prefer son of man language to Messiah? In fact, Jesus would usually squelch messianic language. Well, you can see why Jesus didn't want a premature confrontation with the Romans. The Romans knew that the Jews were waiting for a messianic figure, 
The Romans knew that the Jews would rally around a messianic figure and that this messianic figure might lead a rebellion against the Roman government. So Jesus didn't want a premature confrontation with the Romans. And so he refers to himself as son of man. And the imagery and the language that we find in Daniel chapter 7 is astounding. It shows us that Jesus is either an egomaniac or he is genuinely the one that all of the nations will one day worship and adore. And so Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He knows why he created the Sabbath. He will determine what is appropriate and inappropriate activity on the Sabbath. And people satisfying their hunger is appropriate activity on the Sabbath day. Well, sometime later, we don't know if it's a week later, two weeks later, on another Sabbath, Luke says, he enters a synagogue. And here we see in verse 7 the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees, there were about 6,000 of them in Jesus' day, were primarily lay people who had committed to live according to the laws of Levitical purity and according to the laws of the oral traditions, according to scribal traditions, according to those, those traditions that were passed down by word of mouth. In fact, they were equal to the scriptures. There's the written word of God. There's the oral traditions that came from the rabbis. Uh, those were equally authoritative. The scribes were those that created the oral traditions. They were the religious scholars of the day. And so they're gathered in worship, and rather than worshiping and listening to what Jesus had to say as he proclaimed the Word of God, they're watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. Jesus performed miracles numerous times on the Sabbath day. One, I think, to be a thorn in the Pharisees' side and secondly, to help his disciples work out of their system all of the rules and the regulations that they had heard growing up about how people were to live on the Sabbath day, which weren't biblical, but which were man-made. And they had thought they were biblical. They thought they were equal to the Bible, but they came from man. So Jesus performed numerous miracles. You'll remember he cast a demon out of a man on the Sabbath day. He healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath day. We could go through a litany of seven miracles that he performed on the Sabbath day, but they're watching him. They're, they're watching him very closely. That's the way hypocrites worship. It doesn't matter where we're at, if we're listening to the Word of God and our primary objective is to find out, are they going to cross every T, I cross, dot every I, I Dot. Are they going to do it the way I would do it? Say it the way that I would say it. Watching closely, it says, to see if he would heal on the Sabbath day. Now, remember I mentioned a moment ago, 39 rules govern the Sabbath day, 39 regulations, 39 traditions, 39 things that you had to do or not do on the Sabbath day to satisfy the hypocrite, the Pharisee, the scribe. One of those was healing a person whose life was not in danger because to heal them was to perform an act of medicine. It was, the, it was an act of a physician and, and doing physician work. 
doing medical work on somebody that was not at the verge of death, well, that was considered work. And so they're looking and watching to see if they might accuse him. But Jesus knows what they're thinking. Jesus is the God-man. He knows what's resonating in their minds. He knows what they're contemplating and what they're doing. He knows what no one else could possibly know about people. And so what does he do? He asks them a rhetorical question after having the man come forward. He brings the man with the withered hand. He says, come up. He brings him up in front of the entire congregation. They're looking, they're watching, they're scrutinizing Jesus' every word and movement. And so Jesus asked the congregation, I ask you whether it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it. So he gives us the Cliff Notes version of what the Sabbath is for. It's for doing good. It's for saving a life. Well, how do you respond to that kind of questioning? And Jesus knows what they're thinking, so he looks at them and he says to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was restored. What was Jesus thinking when he was looking at them? Well, I think in, in Matthew 23 and in Luke chapter 20, uh, I brought out a couple of thoughts, I think, that might have been going through his mind in that moment. Listen to what Matthew wrote, quoting Jesus. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Luke chapter 20. While all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to sit around in long robes and love personal greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive all the more condemnation. Mark tells us, describing this very event, that Jesus became quite angry at the religious leaders. Uh, look with me in verse 11. Notice what they were thinking. But they themselves were filled with senseless rage. There's always temper problems with hypocrites. There's always temper problems with Pharisees. And began discussing together what they might do to Jesus. Mark tells us what they decided they would do is they're going to murder him. They're going to kill him. So before the, the final week of Jesus, before the final days of Jesus, they had already decided they were going to kill him. Well, I want to give you some thoughts on Phariseeism. And I want to go back and say what I said a little bit earlier. I don't think we have any of us that are here today that would fit into the into the mold of the Pharisees, the kind of disposition and mentality and, and blatant sense of superiority that, that they had. But I think maybe all of us 
first and foremost, may have tinges of it. Let me give you some thoughts about this and then the antidote for it. The first is this. Character matters more than giftedness in leadership. These were the leaders of God's people. They were biblically knowledgeable, probably very capable, but they lacked character. We've seen throughout evangelicalism people where many, many people, they they were like dogs sitting at the feet of these so-called experts. And those so-called experts lacked any tinge of character at all. Evidenced by the way they treated those who worked for them, those who worked with them, and their families. Character matters more than giftedness all the time. Second, the slide into Phariseeism is a slow and steady decline. It's not like walking off a high, a high diving board where you just walk off and then there's, there's a sudden fall. It's not like that at all. It's usually a slow and steady decline. It begins with when biblical knowledge and truth do not result in a changed life. It's when we can go long periods of time and, and, and we don't know, is God doing anything in me? Now, sometimes I think God lets us go through dry seasons intentionally. But when you can go through long seasons, very long seasons, and there's no evidence that your character is being transformed or your attitude is being changed, it's, a, it's an evidence possibly that you're in the slow and steady decline into Phariseeism. Third, Pharisees are guilty of committing the same sins over and over again. Therefore, their hearts become hard and callous in that area. That is, over time, if you do the same thing over and over and over again, eventually a hardness develops and and the word doesn't penetrate. It would take a, a cataclysmic work of the Spirit, a breaking of that individual. There's a callousness and a hardness because the Spirit will convict us. Why do you speak to your spouse that way? And then we continue to speak to our spouse that way. And over time, we don't sense any conviction about it at all. In fact, we feel justified doing it because we, we feel no conviction. The reason we feel no conviction is because we've not responded time after time after time after time after time to the prodding, the convicting work of the Spirit. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. The spouse is stung by it. But you could never convince that person that, that they are living in sin because the callousness also blinds us to the blatant sin in our lives. So repeatedly refusing 
to respond to the Spirit's leading in a particular area causes us to become callous and we no longer feel, feel the sting of the Spirit in that area. A fourth thought is a critical warning sign of Phariseeism is a critical spirit and a subconscious, why don't you do it like me? A critical warning sign of Phariseeism is a critical spirit that says, why don't you do it like me? That's what they were saying to Jesus. Why don't you follow the Sabbath rules the way I follow them? Why don't you do on the Sabbath what I do? Well, we, we look at that, and, and I don't know about you, but as I was working on that list this week, I had a little bit of despair until I began to think about, you know, with, with heart disease, there are procedures. You put in a stent, you can do a heart bypass. There are antidotes to heart disease if it's caught in time. The antidote to Phariseeism, as I thought about it this week, is God's grace, God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. God's grace is God at work in us, empowering us to respond to the spirit and the word that are speaking to us. We're happy with maybe even those first three, but how does God's people fit in? As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. You will never become all that God wants you to be on an island. You can never be all that God wants you to be casually connected to the people of God. The antidote to Phariseeism is God's grace, God's spirit, God's word, and God's people. I had to quote 1 John 1, 9 this past week. I claimed it as a promise. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, the modern, modern medicine has something I find still to be astounding, and that is a heart transplant. Can you imagine a heart transplant? We've met people who have had heart transplants before. We went to church with a lady in, in um, Tallahassee, Florida, where I was an interim pastor, young lady, very athletic, diseased heart, had a heart transplant. God offers a heart transplant to those who need it. This is the way that Ezekiel put it. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Praise be to God that for most of us in here, we've had a heart transplant. As you know, I've told you so many times, it happened 
to me when I was 19 years of age. It doesn't involve them cutting open your chest cavity and connecting you to all kinds of machines that will keep you alive as they're making the transition from, from, uh, from a corrupted heart to a new heart. It's a work that only God can do. It's the Spirit of God changing who we are, the deepest part of our being. He causes those of us who were dead to be alive, those who were condemned to be reconciled. And if you will call out to God and ask God to save you, He will save you today. If you are genuine and sincere, he's not going to ask you to climb a mountain. He's going to, not going to make you swim the deepest seas. He's not going to have you go into the deepest part of a, of a jungle. He's just going to say, repent and believe the gospel. That's what Jesus said. Repent and believe the gospel. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin, and you will become a new person. You can do that in just a moment as I pray to prepare us to take the Lord's Supper. It may be that you need to claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9 this morning like I did. Maybe there's something that came to your mind by the work of the Spirit that, that, needs, to be, that needs to be handled, needs to be taken care of. You don't, need to, you don't need to spend a lot of time in, in remorse and mourning and sackcloth and ashes. You say, Father, I spoke harshly to my spouse on the way to church. I snapped at my children. I've not been doing your will in this area. I confess that as sin. I turn from it. Help me to do that which is pure and right in your sight. Cleanse me, and you're ready to go. You're ready to, to take the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper will strengthen you and enable you to be able to continue to do that. If you're a guest with us today, we'd love to have you take the Lord's Supper with us. If you're a member of an evangelical church, you've been baptized and you're just visiting with us, whether from out of town or looking for a church home. If you're a believer in Christ, actively uh, following the Savior, we would invite you to take it with us today. Would you pray with me? And then Dr. Eliff is going to come and help me, and our deacons will, will come forward as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you change Pharisees into followers, sinners into saints, rebels into sons and daughters. And Father, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us of that, that you do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And this is a regular reminder of it, but it's more than a reminder. It's a spiritual means of grace by which we are enabled ever more greatly to do your will for your glory in the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.